Today as we celebrate the uh, solemnity of the Immaculate Conception, I've got to confess that this has always been, at least for a while, this is very a tough um, solemnity for me just because I, I kind of understood it, but I didn't really understand it. What is the, uh, the emphasis, what is the, the thrust, if you will, of the Immaculate Conception? Why is it that the church didn't really teach it for so long, uh, but, then, but now that she does teach it, how does it merit such a great power? What, what merits is such a great solemnity? What makes it so incredibly special? And I think really we're going to understand what exactly the Immaculate Conception is. We have to do what we have to do with most, just about everything in the Bible and look at, at it in the context of the Old Testament. If we look at the Immaculate Conception in the context of the Old Testament, in my opinion, it makes sense. If you look at the Old Testament, there, everything in it is fulfilled in the New Testament. But not only is it fulfilled, it's fulfilled in even greater, more amazing terms. So for instance, you have a king, like King David, a young boy who uses the rock, you know, like the rock of the church to slay Goliath. Pretty amazing. But David, as we know, wasn't exactly the, the perfect man, and he fell from grace, and eventually got a little bit, you know, had, had some redemption, but he was, he, he had his flaws. Who was he fulfilled in? Jesus, the king. You have the son, Solomon, who was meant to bring salvation to Israel. What happens? Well, he messed up too. Who fulfills that? Jesus. You see this pattern throughout the Old Testament. You see these great men, Samson, falls, who fulfills them? Jesus. These types of things go on and on. Now, there are two figures, though, that are not fulfilled directly in Jesus, and two things that, that don't really make sense, that are actually a feminine form versus a masculine form. The first of these figures is Eve. How does Jesus fulfill Eve? I mean, in a sense, you know, Jesus is the perfect man, but you have Adam for that. What about Eve? And I think Eve, if there is no Mary, if there is no Immaculate Conception, doesn't get fulfilled. Eve is kind of left as, as kind of this, this, this figure that, that never actually, uh, that never actually, there's no real ending to that story. But how do we claim, or how do we, why do we ever say that Mary is the new Eve whenever it's not written in the Bible? There's nothing in the Bible that says Mary is the new Eve, at least not specifically. Where do we find that? We find that actually in, in the, the first, uh, in the Gospel of John. And in the Gospel of John, we have this interesting thing called the Wedding Feast of Cana. Where in this Wedding Feast of Cana, you see that this Wedding Feast set in an interesting context. The Wedding Feast is seven days after creation. At least the way John sets it. The way John sets it, he starts off with the prologue, the beginning of all of creation. And then he says the next day, talking about John the Baptist, and the next day talking about Jesus going into the going um, and getting disciples, and the next day and the next day, and then on the four on the third day, essentially putting in the context of seven days, like creation. And in these seven days, Jesus says arguably the most divisive, confusing, strange things you will ever find in the Bible. He looks at his mother, after his mother innocently, kindly goes and says, hey, there's no wine. What does he do? He says, woman, what have you to do with me? Now, gentlemen, I do not ever expect you, and I do not suggest you address women the way Jesus addressed his mother at that moment. That's not a good idea. All right? I, don't, I do not encourage you to do that. But there's a meaning for that. 
Who else in the seven days of creation said the word woman? It was Adam. Whenever Eve came forth from Adam's side, he called her woman, which means from man. That's essentially the context. And right then in that moment, Adam names Eve, and he puts salvation in the hands of Mary the new Eve, in the same way damnation was in the hands of the old Eve. And whereas the old Eve took damnation and thrust it upon Adam and said, take and eat, what does Mary do? Mary, as opposed to imposing, instead defers. She goes to the men and says, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And so Mary, at that moment where she is kind of has that power, has that, that, that influence, has that say, gives it away where Eve could not. Both immaculately conceived, but both took different directions. Eve, the direction of damnation. Mary, the direction of salvation. All because they were immaculately conceived. All because they're a part of a new creation. But there's another, even to me, even more intriguing figure that is never fulfilled in the New Testament. And that's the Ark of the Covenant. Many great movies, really just one great movie, but you want to, you know, so many great, great stories. Indiana Jones, for instance, Raiders of the Lost Ark have been surrounding this mysterious figure, this Ark of the Covenant, this Ark that, that's been lost to human history. This ark that, you know, some people say is in Kenya or Ethiopia, but isn't really there. You know, this ark, this mysterious kind of ark that ultimately uh, is kind of lost. And the reason why we say it's lost is because we live in a land full of, uh, of people who do not believe in the full Bible. We'll leave it at that. Um, people who do not believe in the, in the entire Bible. Because if we look at the full Bible, if we look at 2 Maccabees, we can see that the ark actually isn't lost at all. The ark was taken by Jeremiah. And what does he do? He takes the ark, which, if we remember, is the presence of God. This, this beautiful gold kind of tabernacle-like figure that held Aaron's rod, uh, the, the manna from the, from the desert, and the fragments of the Old Testament. And he took it and he sealed it in a cave in Mount Nebo. In this cave, he put it in there and people followed him so they can go and dig it up again. Jeremiah looked at these people and said, you will never find it until the time that, that, God, that the Lord comes in mercy. In mercy. That's interesting. That's interesting because the majority, if we look at it, the majority of kind of prophecies of the Lord coming are not him coming in mercy at all. The majority of the prophecies of the Lord coming are him coming in justice. Well, he will right the wrong, or he will fix the bad, or he will kind of, kind of erase all the hurt, or he will heal the wounds. Not the time of mercy. But being that we're Christian Catholics and we've got some time to think about it, we now know what the time of mercy is. The time of mercy is the first coming of Jesus. The time of mercy that you and I await for Christmas, that kind of first moment where, where we have the opportunity for redemption, where we have the opportunity to worship Christ, Jesus Christ. But... Here's the thing. Where does it say that in the Bible? 
Where does it say the time of mercy in the Bible? There's only one place. And that is Mary's Magnificat. In Mary's Magnificat, she professes and explains that this, at this moment, this is the time of mercy. And when does Mary say and pronounce her Magnificat? The very chapter, really in the same chapter, but the, but the next kind of stanza, after, the next summary, after this one specific pericope, after this one specific gospel passage. Right over here, you have that moment where Mary does what? She visits Elizabeth, and ultimately Elizabeth kind of leaps for joy, gets excited, and Mary then proclaims her Magnificat and says that this is the moment for mercy. This is the time where the Lord has looked upon us with favor and compassion. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Where is the ark, though? Where is the ark? If we study closely the whole story of the visitation, it has time and time again language that, that the Lord uses in 2 Samuel 6 to describe the ark. Mary escapes into the hill country. The ark is led into the hill country in the land of Obadiah. The ark is not in Jerusalem, but instead he goes to the hill country, and it's there for how long? The ark is there for three months. Mary is with, with, is with Elizabeth for three months. David dances for joy whenever the ark comes to him in the presence of, in the presence of, of whenever he comes in the presence of the ark, and he says, how is it the ark of the, my Lord should come to me? John the Baptist dances for joy whenever the presence of Jesus is brought to him, and Elizabeth says, how is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, what does this have to do with an immaculate conception? And that is, the, this is it precisely. The ark was holy. The holiest of holies. In fact, in that second, in that, in that second Samuel 6, Uzzah, the, uh, this, the Old Testament priest who is very, very lazy apparently, decided to break the covenant and instead of carrying the ark with two acacia poles that go through the, the tubes of the ark, they put it on an, on a, on an ox, basically an oxen cart, and then goes to stabilize the oxen cart, puts his hand on the ark, a man touches the ark, and what happens? He dies instantly, struck down. Why? Because he violated the purity of the ark. What does Mary say? How is it that I have no relations with a man? In other words, what we have here is we have in Mary not only a new Eve, but the new Ark of the Covenant, a brand new vessel of Jesus Christ, a brand new vessel of the Lord that's not just, that's just, not just containing sacraments of God like the rod of Aaron, like manna, like, the, like the, 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 the fragments of the Ten Commandments, but God himself. Who is it that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And the only way to justify that, the only way to rectify that, is if we acknowledge that she is the perfect vessel, that she is the favored one, that she really is full of grace, meaning without sin. That's the beauty of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's the beauty of the Immaculate Conception. A woman who comes into our lives, a woman who's there for us to intercede for us as our new mother and as the vessel of God.